0: Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland.
1: Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com.
0: Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. My name is Soren Schwab, VP of Partnerships here at CLT, and today we are joined by Andrew Brummett. Andrew is the founder of the Wayside School and Wayside Educational, an educational services company serving a network of micro high schools. After founding the first of these micro high schools in the heart of Philadelphia, Atonement Academy in Germantown, Andrew and his family relocated back to Texas, his home state, due to the needs of his extended family there. In Austin, he serves as the head of upper school at Austin Classical School. In addition to education and educational freedom, Andrew is passionately committed to what has been called the depolarization movement, In 2019, Andrew was elected the president of the Burke Payne Society, a national nonprofit organization that seeks to bring together cross-partisan discussion groups across the country. And boy, do we know that's necessary these days. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, Andrew, we like to start the Anchored Podcast by talking about our guest's own educational uh, background. Um, So talk to us a little bit about what, what was school like for you growing up? We said you're, you're you're a Texas boy. Um, did you go to right. public school, Christian school? Uh, what was it like?
1: Well, I started off in a, a public school in a, a sort of a disadvantaged neighborhood in Austin, Texas. And um, after one year of kindergarten there, my parents, I think, wisely found a private school that was not classical. This was kind of before the time of the classical movement, but it was traditional. And it was, so it was very rooted in a lot of the same things. Uh, and I think one of the best things we did was choir. So I, I did that through fifth grade um, in Austin, Texas. And then we had the opportunity to move into um, a neighborhood where we were part of the Round Rock Independent School District and uh, went to both middle school and high school there and really I was able to benefit from, you know, Blue Ribbon School, some of the best in the nation. Um, and yet looking back on it, I realized how much I could have done uh, more than that, and and how much I, more I could have been challenged. Um, so definitely made the most out of those opportunities and enjoyed my time there, but there were still some gaps. And and that's what I began exploring uh, when I went to college and then after that as well.
0: Yeah, so like I said, you're a Texan through and through. So you got your, your bachelor's from University of Texas in Austin, got your master's from Texas A&M, um, and then your master of theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. But when when we first met you and I um you were you were out east right so you were were out in, right. uh, in in Philadelphia um when you brought CLT to your to your school so so talk us talk to us a little bit about kind of your 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 bachelor and then post um post bachelor what was kind of your journey into into education
1: Yeah I've always education has been something I've been interested in um from the beginning of my college experience in fact as a freshman in college I was substitute teaching at my former high school So I always made sure to wear a tie and a coat so that they knew I wasn't a student. And, uh, the uh, principal liked that. She wished that, uh, all of her teachers dressed appropriately like that. Um, but so it's been something I've been trained in, uh, while I was in college. Um, and then after college as well, served as a graduate uh, teaching assistant at Texas A&M. So I've been, I've had education on the brain for a long time. Um, before going into it, I, I joined the, um, reserve, uh, army reserve, and uh, needed to figure out kind of what I was going to do full time uh, in between undergrad and grad school and went to Texas A&M to study military history, to be a better reserve officer, and then also to get the master's in history with the intention of discerning whether I wanted to pursue the PhD or not. And for me, that was uh, a great experience and one that that helped me to definitely discern that the PhD was not the the, the direction for me. Um, I realized that um, in order to achieve that, you have to become the world's best expert on, you know, this very small segment of knowledge. And I love reading the the dissertations and the research that historians were doing. but I realized I just I didn't have the focus for that. And I'm very much a generalist, not a specialist, and very much a practitioner rather than a theorist, although I enjoy theory as well. Um and so that that meant um, going into education. in in the meanwhile, Um, In the meantime, I should say, uh, I met my wife there, and we got married, and I also felt strongly called into ministry, and so I went to Dallas uh, Theological Seminary, um, did a little bit in ministry, and then finally came back and started my educational career after that. So, uh, circuitous route, um, but enjoyable. Um, You'd have to pay me to go back to school if (laughs) I had plenty of it, um, but I enjoyed it, all three institutions very much.
0: Uh, fantastic and and i mean looking at your looking at your resume you've been you've, you have you're still very young andrew but you you've come around i mean you've been to very um uh you've, you've taught at or led uh various schools and and what's interesting you've you've been in the classical kind of charter schools um mm-hmm. at, at one of the founder schools um in flower mount um you you've 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 been at um, the traditional kind of brick and mortar uh protestant classical christian school um But then you were recruited to lead a classical Christian parish micro school, um, Mm -hmm. one that was serving urban immigrant families. And that's, was that Christ Academy, right? If I remember that correctly. That's right. Yep. Is that that what what brought you out out East?
1: That's right. Yes. Um, While I was trying to, you know, settle in, my kids began uh, with me. They were in first grade at Founders and I was a fifth grade teacher and really enjoyed that. You know, Hillsdale came out and trained the teachers and just, Just ate that up, just wonderful experience. I'd already been trained uh, in an alternative certification program in Texas. So I was on the route to certification and had kind of the the more progressive training. And then I added to that the classical training that Hillsdale provided. And that's that's been something that's always been a part of who I am as very much a synthesis person. I I desire to to find the best of both worlds and to find a creative way to sort of bring those together. And so that's that's what I was doing, learning the the charter school model and the virtues of that and some of the weaknesses of it um same with sort of the the the, as you said the typical kind of classical christian protestant school Um, but i always had a heart my wife does too she started her teaching career uh teaching biology in for freshmen in dallas independent school district in a, a more of a disadvantaged neighborhood and we've always just had a heart for the poor and for those who don't have the educational opportunities that other families might. And so uh, when I met the pastor of the church uh, from the Philadelphia area, and he told me about what they were doing, I'd already become aware of the micro school movement, um, following uh, things like Acton Academy and reading about uh, some of the, the interesting growth in that sector. And then finding out, uh, you know, a school that was really a micro school, a so multi-grade classroom format, um, serving the urban poor. Uh immigrant families from Liberia, primarily, um, but doing it as a classical Christian school out of a church, right? And all those things just checked all the right boxes. And I was um, excited to be recruited to become a school leader at that point. And uh, went out to Philadelphia uh, for that purpose. Uh, hard work. I mean, very much hard work and um, learned a lot about the sort of the landscape of uh, educational freedom in, in the urban environment and in Pennsylvania. And a lot of things that that I just didn't know yet, uh, I, I sort of took for granted, uh, became a part of the uh, the wonderful that you know the the network of kind of urban classical Christian schools, and really enjoyed um, that network. Um, and then uh, ultimately um, found an additional opportunity. Uh, I had I basically cut myself out of the budget there because I no longer could afford me um, fundraising. Just did not happen the way we I had hoped it would. Um, but I'm also quite entrepreneurial. So after helping that school get back on its feet and hiring some new staff and turning some things around behaviorally and academically, um, I was ready to to start, you know, to create something uh, from nothing, basically, um, with with the experience and the ideas that I had gained along this journey. And that was Atonement Academy. Um, and just really a good friend of mine was the pastor of a sister parish to so the one that I was uh, serving in. And he and I, uh, our friendship developed into a partnership to start a school there. And uh, so that's kind of how that came together. My wife stayed at Christ Academy. My friends and my family were there. My my kids were there. And uh, the pandemic ended up taking that school out completely. Um, They've rebranded it and restarted as a hybrid school, which is a little bit more, a little bit easier on the budget uh, for both families and for uh, the fundraising aspect. So it's still, there's still education going on there. Um, and it's high quality education, but it was, uh, it it was an interesting process and, and, and sad to see it go, but also excited to see the sort of the resurrection of something new.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I'd love to, love to pick your brain a little bit on that. I mean, you are certainly, uh, like you said, an entrepreneur and educational innovator. Um, the, the seeds were certainly planted, before the pandemic, but, but then obviously 2020, um, happens and, and, and education changes probably forever, right. The the way we do education. And so, um, for maybe for our listeners that are, you you mentioned micro school, you mentioned hybrid school for our Mm. listeners that might not be familiar with the one or the other, or the difference between the two. Um, Mm. can you share a little bit about those, those two terms?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So hybrid is sometimes called university model, and also um, sometimes called collaborative, and those just mean it's it's a part time school model where some work is done at home and some work is done at school. So you have kind of the benefit of both worlds. You have the the uh, strong interaction um, between one of the parents or both parents and the students at home, um, combined with the structure and the professional expertise of of a teaching staff and and all the other things you get with a school like programs and art and theater and sports and things like that. Um, and so uh, that is essentially growing because it's affordable, right? If you can get something these days, you know, under 10,000 or maybe a little bit more than 10,000, all of a sudden you can appeal to a much broader, um, group of potential students and families. Um, and, those are the growth markets of things that are priced right around, you know, 9,000, let's say, per year. Um, micro schools are priced almost the exact same as hybrid schools. Um, and what that is, is the idea of, of having a multi-grade, small-sized uh, school. So I've seen definitions that are 150 or fewer students um, across all grades. Um it, For wayside schools, we we define a micro high school as 50 or fewer students. Um, And the benefit there is that you have uh, one group of students from different grades. And the the key innovation that has made that work uh, so far in most micro schools is uh, technology and the ability to use computers to differentiate learning. So students can be on a self-pace um, and they can be in their grade level and working alongside someone else because they're on two different computers. Um, at Christ Academy, uh, I learned a model of how to do that without computers. And we we rotated it through a curriculum. So you kind of had, you know, think of uh, Susan Wise Bower's four uh, story of the world books. That was essentially like the, the four-year format. Um, we used those books in the lower grades and then we used different books to study the history and the literature of that era at, at a higher level in the middle school and then at an even higher level at the high school. By the time you get to high school and you've done that cycle a couple of times, you can really dig in, you know, and you can all be in the same in a multi-grade classroom learning together because you're gonna, you're not gonna get the same thing every year. Um, you can't do that with math, you can't do that with languages, and you have to find ways to do ability groups for those. Um, but it was exciting to me because it it was it really brought down the cost of education. And when you're talking about figuring out how to meet the needs of low income folks throughout the country and the world, right? You need you need lower cost options. And so you know half of the equation, right? Either I can raise ten thousand dollars or I can cut it out of my budget, right? And the the effect is the same either way. So my mind has always been halfway asking, how can we do this better for cheaper? And uh, that, that particular, um, well, this is straying off your question, but when 2020 happened and the pandemic hit, uh, some of the learning that, that I acquired from that experience made me realize some ways that I could make it better for cheaper. And uh, that's kind of what brought about Wayside Educational and, and the Wayside School.
0: So um, you mentioned Atonement Academy. So Atonement Academy is one of the um, or the first one, um, school under the umbrella of, Mm -hmm. of the wayside school. And so it's a micro, but high school only, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Um, what's kind of the vision and and maybe, maybe even what what are, you already mentioned some, but, but, but the unique features of the wayside schools and and maybe the philosophical underpinnings, you mentioned the cost model, which is (laughs) Mm -hmm. practically right. Really, really important. But, uh, um, are, are they, uh, you know, are there classical schools? Are there Christian schools? Mm-hmm. Um, can you replicate them easily? Uh, is, it, yeah. is it kind of a franchise model? Talk to us a little bit about, about the Wayside School.
1: Yeah, so Atonement Academy, we had already designed uh, prior to the pandemic, and we were well underway with creating the school and, and attracting um, new families. In fact, we can see pictures of the first open house we had, and everybody didn't have a mask on, and it was just wonderful. And you know, after that, it was a lot different. Um, but it, it's essentially, it is a micro high school. All the grades are together. And, and some of the innovations that we adopted uh, were a restful, uh, very stable rhythm of, of daily work. Um, and essentially, for most classes, what that uh, looks like and feels like is you have a reading day. Um, let's say on for Atonement Academy, it's on Friday, the first reading day. So the, the week kind of begins on Friday. And then on Monday, you have another reading day. And those those often include uh, sort of additional assignments based on that reading just to get the students to begin to think through what they're reading. And then they come to class on Tuesday, and that's our lesson day. Um, A good way to think about it is is like a large, I mean, I went to the University of Texas at Austin, right? 53,000 of my closest friends at a time. And in these large lecture halls, you'd have a, a professor who would Teach and and who know who knew the course and knew the material had a passion for his subject hopefully or her subject, but then really the the nitty gritty work was done in the in the TA section right um, the grading of the papers the giving of the grades all that stuff was in the TA section so essentially what we realized is through collaborative technology like Zoom and Google Classroom and things like that we uh, have teachers teach to the whole lecture hall which is potentially the whole world right uh, through collaborative technology and then. Each uh, specific campus is like that TA section. So our local leaders, our principal teacher or cohort leader, we we sometimes call them different things. They're the ones doing all the grading and implementing all the subjects on the ground, but they don't have to prep all the subjects. And by collaborating uh, with other campuses and with other teachers, you get the most expertise and passion you you can find for that particular text or that particular course. And that's a real benefit to the students. Otherwise it'd be really, it's always harder to, to, um, high schools are more expensive because you have to hire more expert faculty usually to to teach well. And we figured out a way to do that uh, for a lot less money. So that uh, then, so you go come to Tuesday and Tuesday we use Zoom and the students are, some of their professors or some of their teachers are, uh, they're seeing on the screen, some are in person and the other uh, campuses are seeing them on screen and it also allows the students actually to to realize they're participating in something bigger it's it's exciting to be a part of something big even though your your particular piece of that's quite small and very manageable so on wednesday we send the students home having sort of read the text begin to think about it and then really uh, we expect our teachers to bring that alive like bring that that expertise and passion to where the students really begin to dig deeper into the text and and that Passion, of course, is, is um contagious, right? And begin to get excited about it. And then we send them home with a writing assignment where they they come back having written something of their own uh based on that text. And then we have a discussion day on Thursday where they're they're sharing their thoughts, they're discussing one another's thoughts under the direction of that local teacher. And uh we have found that this model, um, which you know really came mostly from my thoughts about college education and how that that big big uh big room full of students how that really actually worked um but it's very effective so students are able to go deeper than they would normally be able to go because of this kind of the restful repetition built into this rhythm of the week and uh we that's a key feature we also uh try to keep all of the work um into 30 hours a week so it's a restful uh, amount of work as well and by using our time much more efficiently than a, than most five-day schools we're able to do that um and and yet it's, it's still very rigorous so it's ro- both restful uh, and rigorous um and then the the cohort based learning of having the multi-grade you know small cohort where you have the same teacher year in and year out um one of the things that i was you know, thought of as a teacher was at the end of the year after you finally figured out how to teach that student and that student has finally figured out how to understand what you're saying and, and how you teach and all the pistons are firing, right? Like everything is good to go about two thirds of the way through the year. You got about a third, that last third, maybe if you're lucky a half the year where everything's highly efficient and then you say goodbye and you don't see the student again because they go off to the next, you know, next sort of, assembly line, you know, it's like the Prussian factory model of right here, here's your grade and here's your teacher, and here you know, go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And so as a teacher, I thought, you know, I'd love to be with these students more than this one year because now I know the student and we can actually do this thing better. Um and that's what we have. So so we see the benefit of having this longevity of relationship. Uh, between the students and between the teacher and the students. And then the older students are able to f- naturally fill leadership positions, just like you would in a family, you know, having older uh, older children. Now I have, my my oldest are twins. And so this is not as simple in our house. Uh, there's not an oldest child, but generally speaking, children understand they look up to the older sibling, the older sister the older brother. And we find the multi-grade cohort students do exactly that. Right there's natural leadership opportunities that come about for the older students to exercise those those key skills and learn those skills that they're going to need in the in the, the future world they they the join after they graduate right um, so those are some of the the key pieces we also have a civics focus we we are very oriented around as you might imagine with my interest in civics and the, I feel like the need for education to address, um, our polarization and our, and our, and our need for civic education. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, each school and the network can do a lot of things however it wants to. I mean, I call this boutique features. I mean, each school, if they want to specialize in, you know, Latin American history and language, uh, and, um, in, incorporate some kind of a fourth year that's a, an intensive learning experience uh, in that sort of field, that'd be great, right? If they want to ad- adopt a particular sport, um, most high schools try to be kind of the best of all worlds, where you kind of have this cafeteria style and you go get a little of this and a little of that, and you get to kind of bring it all together the way you want to. We look at education as more of like inviting somebody to your home and preparing a meal that you've put together that's well integrated. And that, therefore, is, is just higher quality and more enjoyable and delightful. And that's our that's our curriculum. But each school is going to be able to implement that in a slightly different way. And uh, we will add a four-year a four option as well. But if you do the three-year option, that fourth year is designed to be totally open. The school and the student and their parents uh, get to decide how to fill that those extra uh, credits. And including graduating early, if you want to, doing an early right. gap year experience or doing a capstone kind of handcrafted experience for students, uh, according to their interests.
0: Well, Andrew, this is this is fascinating and, and certainly a lot to to unpack. Um, I, I think what 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 really resonated with me and, and you know, my experience, I, I was I was teaching at a, at a classical charter school and certainly a high performing school um, by all quantifiable measures. Um sure. But but I did sometimes feel like it was almost like we're burning out kids before they even go to college. Right. And there's there's right. always this, well, you know, is it really is it more about what we put out as in, you know, look at our reading list and we're reading yeah. all these books and the kids are studying all these different things. But when it comes down to it. The students didn't have that kind of restful learning experience, and I think right. uh, b- both Joseph Pieper and, and 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 Dr. Chris Parent <laughs> mm-hmm. um, have really have really changed yeah. my way of of looking at the idea of scholae and, and, and leisure. Mm-hmm. And so, it, it, kind of philosophically, when 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 did you kind of kind of think think more about it? Was it with your own kids? Was it with um, kind of your experience teaching and then being an administrator. Mm-hmm. That that idea. And what do you tell parents that might have concerns? Right? Are we are, we, are they doing enough? Right? Are yeah. they reading enough? Are they studying enough? Sure. Um, when when did that, that that shift kind of happen for you?
1: Well, you know, for me it was is very early. Like I said, I've been kind of uh, meditating on educational practices and theory since my freshman year of college, essentially. But I did a I did a um, a senior thesis as an undergraduate and. Um I studied uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's book Tales of a Wayside Inn, and I also studied uh, Hawthorne, Nathaniel Hawthorne's works, especially the Scarlet Letter uh, and the mosses from an old Mance, uh, the introduction to that. And my my thesis was that the, and these guys were friends. They wanted to start a literary journal together that didn't actually ever happen. but uh, Hawthorne named his house the Wayside, um, and then later on, Uh, Longfellow named his book of poems tales of a wayside Inn," and he was going to call it something different called the Sudbury tales originally. But my thesis was that that was intentional and it was a literary reference to Hawthorne. And you find Hawthorne's name actually in the opening uh, poetry of that book of poems, um, which is, I think a literary reference to his friend as as sort of a way to honor him and his theory. But Hawthorne says in there, he says, you know, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, you know, if we were to sort of have a a a pet idea that is sort of the thing that we're after more than anything else, it is to offer people rest. And he describes people coming into his abode, and there's this orchard in the front yard of the old manse. I actually did kind of a literary pilgrimage up there to um, the Boston area and saw this. But uh, people come in and they fall asleep because it's so beautiful and tranquil, and uh, he thinks that that's the best compliment um, he could receive is that people feel so peaceful, they just fall asleep. And so um, what I learned from that is the need for a, a an individual, a person to exercise their authority over a space to create restful uh, opportunities for learning ultimately. and And he says, it's not about, you know, information or entertainment. It's about rest. But what he's really after is actually transformational learning, deep, deep learning, the kind that our nation needed to hopefully uh, get out of the crisis it was in and avoid the Civil War. Of course, that didn't happen, but that was their literary project. And so that idea of restful learning was with me quite early from the study of these um, these two literary figures and their works. And of course, I've, I've been influenced by uh, Christopher Perrin as well and love what they're doing as well. Um, and so, for me, that's just been part of probably uh, my journey, uh, my my quest for sort of community, and and to have community, you need uh, a restful environment for that community. And boy, the modern world really is struggling with this, right? Um, and schools are struggling with this. And uh, you know, actually, you and I were at the—I um, guess it was in the spring when you were in Austin uh, with the CLT, and we heard those those four. Two deans of honors colleges and two administrators, uh, uh, head admissions people. And they talked about how the last five years of not just the pandemic, but the rise in uh, various kinds of anxiety and, and disorders and, and um, just kind of uh, the, the, the psychological uh, issues that students have now. And to me, that that really speaks of the deep need to rethink how we're doing this. Uh, it's it's not working. Sometimes, you know, we can definitely impart a lot of knowledge and a lot of skills, academic skills. But are we helping people learn the life skills of how to flourish as a human being? The kind of rhythms that are are natural work and rest and family and church rhythms that that the human being flourishes with, um, or is it does it feel like a huge burden? And everything come down to um, you know just the the clock and the deadlines and the the all nighters and that whole thing and so what we're trying to do is to increase the level of rigor while simultaneously decreasing the workload and i think it's possible and i think it's absolutely necessary uh,
0: very well said um andrew and i and i could not agree more and 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 we mentioned earlier right i mean while of course the pandemic was devastating in so many different ways I think it allowed for us as educators to really reflect on are we, why are we doing this in the first place and is the way we're doing it the right way? And and I think you just mentioned the term rigor and, and I've struggled with that term uh, my entire educational journey um, because I think sometimes rigor is used as a substitute just for quantity. Right, mm-hmm. or we're a rigorous school, meaning we just assign a lot of homework, just and throw books at you. <laughs> right, we're reading a lot, and and uh, I, I like to think of rigor as the intensity with which you do something, and that could be one poem mm-hmm. as homework, one poem, mm-hmm. right? But I think sometimes right. as teachers we just feel like is, is that enough? I mean, I'm just giving them right. giving them one poem, but you're actually allowing them to dig deeper. Right. Right. Um, That's and, right. And and so, uh, I, I, yeah. And I, scaffolding
1: I, it too it, and structuring and helping them.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely onto something. Um, well, micro schools, um, we talk about hybrid schooling, obviously the rise in homeschooling where uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, a classical uh, online school that uses VR technology. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there's so much innovation right now in education. Um you being the entrepreneur that you are, what are the next five, 10, 15, 20 years going to look like your, your best guess? Where, where's education going? Um, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I, I think it, it, it must do, uh, it must open up opportunities for people. I, I think that we're seeing a growing movement, a demand for, of families for more options and, uh, you know, However that happens, that has to happen. There are so many people that are just trapped uh, in terrible schools. And uh, so that, I believe that we will see a greater expansion of educational freedom because humanity demands it. Um, I also believe, though, at the same time, that um, still the majority of schools are going to be in-person schools. And I I believe that because I believe in human nature, that it's a constant, that it's not malleable. Um, and, and there's something about embodiment that, that when we are together in the body, there is more that happens through that, uh, than when you're, uh, mediated through technology. And although you can, you can get by with it, right. Human beings can survive. We can adapt. We can do some great things. Still, there's something superior to being in the flesh with other human beings and learning from a teacher in in, in person, you know? And so I, I think that that's, you will see a proliferation of sort of online options, VR, I'm sure, options. But I think ultimately there's going to be a swing back um, once it's affordable, <laughs> and that's the key. Um, but there was going to be a swing back to Im- embodiment, um, to embodied learning. So, and I think the, the pandemic has led to some good things and some difficult things. I mean, there's so many churches today, for example, that are struggling to get their people back in person. And uh, boy, how can you do church uh, as the body of Christ without being in the flesh together in a room, you know, and it's just not the same thing otherwise.
0: No, that's that's a good point. And, I, and I've talked to some of my friends in, in classical Christian schools or in charter schools that have the five-day brick and mortar. And, um, you know, and I always tell them, I mean, I, I think a lot of families would choose that option if they had it, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they mm-hmm. live in an area where there are not. Uh, right. A lot of schools. Right. And everyone lives in in Texas or Florida where there are some choices. Um, and so uh, the fact that you are providing um, educational options for for families that otherwise, you know, wouldn't ha- maybe would send their kids to the public right. school down the street. Right. I mean, that that's an improvement in and of itself.
1: Yeah. And we're and we're uh, our network is for all types of schools. Really, we we want to have full time schools, part time schools one-day-a-week schools, no days in person, or cooperatives where uh, families get together and they have a curriculum ready-made to go and the parents maybe share some of the teaching load. And I mean, that's ex- extremely inexpensive. Um, and we're ready to do all of that. Um, of course, being an innovator, it's always helping people see the benefit of the new thing, right? And that that old Prussian system of you know the grade grade class system uh is is built into our psyche as Americans. The the American schoolhouse is, is no longer the one room schoolhouse, but it's the, the large brick and mortar building with lots of classrooms, lots of teachers. And that's what we think it should be. Um, so breaking that that thought pattern, that idea, um, to allow people to see the benefit of other things. Um, so less expensive does not mean less quality. Um, but sometimes we think it does. So,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, as 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 the German here, I I, I do apologize. We've brought some, <laughs> <laughs> introduced some
1: good some things bad and bad things. Good and things, good things and and I'm sure and America ideas. gave you guys back some good things <laughs> and bad things, right? Still, still do. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> wonderful. Absolutely.
0: Well, this has been so delightful, Andrew. We're we're gonna uh, close with the question we always ask at the end. Um, if there's, if there's one book or one text, um, that you can point to that has most impacted you either as a professional or as a man, what would that be?
1: Well, I think I already mentioned it. I mean, the Scarlet Letter, uh, Hawthorne's work, um, deeply impactful. Um, and I was so thankful that I, I somehow, because I switched between honors and tag classes in literature in, High school, I didn't actually get American literature in high school, and and that was a been a blessing because then I got it at at college uh, and had a wonderful American literature professor who just ignited in a, in, a, in me a passion for literature in general and for American literature and Hawthorne in particular. Um, but he, the Hawthorne's literary project of providing this restful space through literature. Um, in which to reimagine the possibilities, to um, recreate, um, to uh, become able to love one another again. Um, that was all part of what he was trying to do. And you see in the Scarlet Letter, of course, the family is always trying to come back together, right? And you you hope that it's going to happen, and it does never happen, um, sort of, uh, except one part where they're finally in the woods together, uh, and it's just them. It's just, you know, the husband well they're not husband and wife right of course it's it's dimsdale and hester and pearl and they finally find something like domestic tranquility and blessing in this restful space in the wilderness and hawthorne is trying to show us that public things cannot provide rest so the old manse you know his his house he could he could provide rest but then in the custom house which is the the prologue to the scarlet letter it's, it's owned by the government, and there is no rest there. They're sleeping, but there's no rest. Um, and that's, that's just stuck with me ever since then and, and really been the book, besides the Bible, of course, uh, that has uh, – and, and, of course, this is all biblical, right? Uh, Matthew 11, 20 through 30, Jesus says, you know, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you – and then he talks about learning from him uh, in that restful context. And so it's, it's a deeply Christian educational philosophy as well.
0: And I encourage all of our listeners to to please take the time to reread the Scar Letter. I I've I've talked to so many folks that their only experience of the Scar Letter was probably poorly taught in that's, high school and they've
1: never. That's why it was a blessing them. that I did not. Right? I probably would have felt the same way. But you have to have some life experience before you can really appreciate it. Right. And Absolutely. I just had none. I had no no pre- prerequisite life experience at that point.
0: It is, it is a it is a marvelous, marvelous work. Um well, this has, been, this has been wonderful, Andrew. Again, we're here with Andrew Brummett, who's the founder of the Wayside School and Wayside Educational. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for, for, for sharing your wisdom uh, and for all you do in education. We really appreciate you.
1: That's my pleasure. And thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.